Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to the elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Today, we're going to be talking about an area of dietetics that most of us probably have fairly limited experience in, and that's pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and the use of enzyme replacement therapy. It's a topic that, as dietitians, we're well aware of, but we may not have managed these patients very often, if at all. So I'm really pleased to have Lauren Atkins today to share her knowledge in this area. Lauren is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with over 10 years experience in pancreatic cancer care. She's worked in cancer centres at Peter Mac, the Royal Children's Hospital and Epworth Health here in Victoria and co-founded her business Oddcore Nutrition. Lauren and her team of dietitians at Encore are aligned with the Pancare Foundation to support greater access to specialised cancer nutrition support, including those affected by pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. And just a disclaimer that this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. And our podcast episode today is supported by Beatrice. So welcome to our podcast, Lauren. It's really nice to have you. Thank you, Jane. Lovely to be back. So to start off with, can you just give us a bit of an overview of your dietetics career um, and how you've sort of become interested in this topic? Yeah, for sure. And look, you summarised nicely um, the different acute centres that I've worked at. So working in oncology for over 10 years since I started my career, um, both with adults and children, adolescents and It was my time working in those clinical acute hospitals that I recognised a gap in care across the board related really to resources and service pathways for cancer patients. And it was those who perhaps weren't considered acutely unwell at the time of admission or a discharge or those who needed ongoing support and follow-up post-discharge that may not have had as great access to dietetic care as would have been beneficial. Um, completely understood this it was understandable given resource limitations but equally very frustrating Uh, and it was my husband actually at the time about five or six years ago who is frustratingly solution focused and he was the one who suggested that I try and fill that gap and offer that service and a good friend of mine and colleague at the time Elise uh, became my business partner and that's when Encore Nutrition started and From there, I was able to establish some really strong relationships with different organisations that are well aligned with uh, wanting to fill that same gap. So Pancare being one of those, we've been able able to develop some great 
service models where patients are financially supported and have greater access to information, particularly in pancreatic exocrine insufficiency and pancreatic-related conditions across the board and across the nation. Uh, not just for patients but for their carers can be really challenging to support someone with. Yeah, and I guess that's that's the thing, isn't it? The cancer journey is so long. Just mm. coming through yes. treatment yes. doesn't mean that no, your journey is finished mm. and, and that also has an effect on your family, your friends, yeah. all of your networks, your work, everywhere. Everywhere. And, and PEI or pancreatic exocrine insufficiency in particular has such a profound impact on someone's quality of life and their nutritional status and a really simple management strategy replacing those enzymes can just change their life quite significantly and as a dietitian that's hugely rewarding um and yeah you just got the opportunity to make such a big difference so if we take a step back and look at PEI, so pancreatic exocrine mm. insufficiency. Can you explain what it is and, and how someone comes to have it? For sure. And look, as the name suggests, it's when the pancreas doesn't produce enough pancreatic enzymes to break down our food and our nutrients that we eat. And so without being able to break down our nutrients, this can then lead to malnutrition but also really uncomfortable gastrointestinal symptoms and a whole host of other issues, both short-term and long-term. So I guess as a dietitian, the first thing that springs to mind in this area is cystic fibrosis. Like Mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing that stands out as, you know, the the insufficiency. But there are obviously a whole range of other medical conditions conditions that lead to this. For sure. And some that are less well-recognised and perhaps under-recognised in the community. So Chronic pancreatitis is one. So up to 94% of patients with chronic pancreatitis can present with PEI. And interestingly, the diagnosis can be delayed months to years after diagnosis. The pancreas has the ability to continue to provide enzymes just from its uh, existing capacity, despite that chronic damage. And so years later, someone can present with PEI and it's just uh, because the timing's not quite aligned it it doesn't make as much sense to then diagnose it. So is it just ongoing symptoms is that how the diagnosis eventually comes about? Symptoms and and asking the right questions to the right people and diagnosis and treatment is really easy Um, it's not complicated it's it's very based on clinical symptoms so pancreatitis is one pancreatic cancer is certainly another all patients who've had a total pancreatectomy will require pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy or PERT, and that's just because they don't no longer have a pancreas mm. to produce those enzymes. But many patients who have had a Whipple's or a partial pancreatectomy, particularly where the head of the pancreas is removed or damaged, are very likely to need PERT. Uh, CF, as you mentioned, But also in the context of pancreatic cancer, if someone's having chemo or radiation where there's acute damage, intentional damage to the pancreas, that can lead to short-term or even long-term pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So it may be transient in that situation. Can be, correct. Right. Yeah, particularly with radiation because it's quite an acute short-term damage. Yeah. 
So how long would someone be looking at? So if they, yeah, if it no, was like well, acute, what sort of time very frame? Very similar to the acute recovery after radiation. So right. we say generally it's at least eight weeks post-treatment completion, but that does really vary and, and the replacement enzymes can continue for as long as symptoms exist. Right. Gastrectomy, so total or partial gastrectomy, even those with bariatric surgery, it's been reported anywhere between 47 to 100% of patients who've had a total gastrectomy will end up requiring pancreatic enzyme replacement. I didn't know that. Mm. Even um, conditions like Crohn's, so inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease in some cases, diabetes, and some other rare conditions. Although rare, less than 10% of cases do experience PEI, it does happen. And mm. so it's important, I think, as dietitians just to have it on our radar to yeah. be aware of the symptoms and advocate for further investigation. And, and when do dietitians usually get involved? Is it, I guess it depends on where, how patient res, um, comes to you, yeah, presents yeah. to you. Yeah, and they can present at all different stages. In, in my current role in private practice, the most common presentation is people who are seeking support to manage their really uncomfortable GI symptoms. They're troubled with diarrhea and needing to run off the to the toilet all the time. They've got abdo pain and losing weight um, without um, without any rationale for that. And that's when they tend to come to me that they've got PEI and they just are completely unaware of it. But if you're working in a more acute centre. It might be that someone's had that procedure, they've had a, a Whipple's or a pancreatectomy and it's quite clear that PERT will be needed, if not now, uh, certainly mm. soon once that enzyme capacity is depleted. But across, this, across the board, dietitians in clinical setting, private practice in the community, we pay a really important role in assessing and supporting the diagnosis of PEI because it does often go unrecognised and therefore untreated. So if you have a patient that presents and you're suspicious um, mm. that there might be PEI going on, yeah. uh, do you send them back to their referring doctor or what step do you mm. do? What do you ask for investigation-wise to, to uncover yeah. whether it's PEI? Very good question. And really that, that depends on who you're referring back to. So a man, many different um, specialists could be involved and can support the prescription of PERT. Certainly a GP can do so. Gastroenterologists are really useful specialists to have on the team. Oncologists, surgeons, respiratory specialists, whoever's potentially involved in the team. Some may re request and order uh, particularly faecal testing. Testing for faecal elastase uh, does have some flaws and isn't necessarily um, particularly reliable but it gives you some information. But the, the guidelines actually suggest if there's acute clinical symptoms of fat malabsorption, in, in particular steatorrhea, then the treatment should be to trial PERT and see if it helps. Okay, so there's no really sort of gold standard diagnosis or diagnostic test. It's, it's really varied. There is a gold standard diagnostic test, but it's expensive and yeah, it's invasive yeah, and it okay. doesn't happen uh, in rather just practice. try <laughs> and see yeah, how it goes such a, it's a, such a low risk therapy mm. that it's very easy to try see if you get some relief if not no no harm done
Yeah. And so how long would it usually take for someone to get symptomatic relief straight away? Really, really quickly. Yeah, yeah. because it's essentially travelling through the digestive tract with the food, breaking it down, that meal gets absorbed and yeah. the, the malabsorption symptoms stop. Yeah. So just to, to take a step back, the what are the sort of nutritional consequences you see of PEI? Mm, they're very, very broad and dependent on how long that PEI has been uh, going on for, particularly mm. if it's untreated. But the, the biggest one is fat malabsorption and subsequent malabsorption of fat-soluble vitamins, so vitamins A, D, E and K, but also malabsorption of other micronutrients, zinc, magnesium, calcium, thiamine, folic acid, they're all potentially impacted by PEI. Weight loss and malnutrition are really common simply because that caloric intake is not, uh, you might be consuming it, but you're not absorbing those calories. And then there's significant consequences that can happen um, related to malnutrition and micronutrient deficiency. So if you think about the impact of vitamin D and calcium deficiency, the impact on bone mineral density can be really profound. Almost two-thirds of patients with chronic pancreatitis have been reported to either have osteoporosis or osteopenia. It's quite a a big bone bone density is an important factor. Cardiovascular events are quite common as uh, the just general morbidity and mortality associated with malnutrition. It seems amazing that you can, PEI can grumble along for a long long time. Um, undiagnosed or untreated when mm. it must be so affecting your quality of life. Yeah, well, that and that's huge is the GI symptoms, the, the, the diarrhoea, the malabsorption, the discomfort, the gas, bloating, wind that happens because of undigested food passing through the GI tract, the impact that has on our gut microbiome, loss of appetite, just yeah. disinterest in food. You know, I've come across so often patients who previously, you know, they describe themselves as foodies, love cooking, love enjoying meals socially, and they just they've lost the interest because it's food is uncomfortable. Yeah. So eating socially can be really hard. Certainly fatigue and just generalised malaise are really common, mostly because the, the energy and nutritional intake is insufficient or intake may be sufficient but the absorption yeah. is insufficient so yeah quality of life impact is massive so if you you have a patient come in they give you a history you're suspicious that there might be some pei here mm. um you can't prescribe pert so um mm. i guess you you send a letter or something to their doctor to say this That's is what right you're on suspicious phone. on the yeah. phone this is what you're suspicious of um do you actually recommend a trial of pert like would yeah, so I would I would be really um, really clear with the patient if you do have suspicions, talk them through what your working diagnosis is and what your thoughts are because if they can then be an additional voice to go back to their mm. GP specialist and say, look, this sounds like it could be happening for me, it just reinforces that request. I can't say I've ever had any issues with getting PERT prescribed. Um, as I mentioned before, it's a really low-risk medication in that it's not actually absorbed by the human body. Its effect and impact is in the intestinal lumen. It's pork-derived, so it's essentially just a, you know, it's awful. Yeah, just yeah. <laughs> packaged in a different way. So then do you, um, 
recommend to the patient um, if they start on that to then come back and see you to Definitely. talk about yeah. actually using it? So I generally I would suggest if that prescription is going to happen, I'd advocate for that directly with one of the medical teams or many of the medical mm-hmm. team, depending on who they're seeing soon, um, and certainly provide that education at the same time that it's prescribed or in advance so that the dosing and timing is really well established from the start. What you don't want to do is for someone to start on PERT and not not have the adequate information about dosing and timing because then it won't work and it will yeah. feel like a failed effort. Yeah, therapy, yeah. Um, yeah. So can you sort of walk us through what an education session mm. encompasses when when someone either are about to go on or have started it? Mm. What, what's your sort of strategy in your nutrition education? Yeah, and we'll go, I won't talk about assessment. We can go there if, if that's of interest. Mm. But one thing I'd make make a really key part of my education is have they heard of PERT? Do they not understand what it is? But also relating that back to what pancreatic exocrine insufficiency is. And one analogy I like to use when describing what PERT does is I get a patient and their family to picture a necklace or a chain and imagine that that chain is the food that we eat or a whole nutrient. What happens is we swallow that chain It passes down into our stomach, into our small intestine, and normally our pancreas would release enzymes that help to break that chain down into smaller links. The links are really small, meaning that our intestines can actually absorb those smaller nutrients. But as a chain, if if they're not cleaved or not broken down by the enzymes, they pass through our intestines. Not only do they end up in the toilet, but they also don't get absorbed. So we don't get the goodness from the food that we worked hard to eat. And so I'll describe that if the pancreas is not working sufficiently to create and release, produce those enzymes, then we don't have capacity to break down those nutrients and they're malabsorbed. So understanding how it works is really important because then it flows on to why dosage and timing is really key. So I talk a lot about the the way that PERT works and that it needs to be delivered at the same time as the meal in order for it to buddy up with those nutrients and and work on them to break them down. In some cases, I'll talk about the different layers of coating and how the stomach and the intestine are important uh, to break it down in different ways. But also I'll talk about blanket dosing to start with and then more tailored dosing depending on the fat content of a meal, snack or a fluid. And what does blanket dosing actually mean? Yeah, so generally there's there's guidelines that encourage uh, a blanket amount of Creon to be taken at each meal and snack. So roughly 50,000 international units with main meals and twenty to 25,000 international units with snacks and fluids after pancreatic surgery or total pancreatic pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. If there is gastric surgery or other conditions where there's some residual pancreatic enzyme function, the dosing is a little bit different. So a little bit less, 20,000 international units with main meals and 10,000 with snacks and fluids. But depending on the, um, the, the level of education, but equally the level of interest of the patient and the carers, you could 
uh, escalate to a little bit more detail and talk about the dosing of creon to fat. So there is a, is a recommendation also that approximately 10,000 international units of PERT can be dosed to six to eight grams of fat and then adjusted according to an individual's clinical symptoms. And does that dosage equate to a lot of individual tablets? It can do. So it would um, you can get different dosing amounts right. per capsule. So there's 10,000 international units, 25,000 international units, and now 35,000 international units. In one units. capsule? Yeah. yeah. So okay. um, one or two capsules per meal. Right. Okay. So it's yeah, not, yeah, I, I remember back years ago when I was training cystic fibrosis, like they talked about this just incredible so number, yeah, number of, of tablets actually yeah. had to be taken. They yeah. blunted people's appetite before they even got to the food. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that, <laughs> yeah. depending on how many you take. But certainly if you're taking, if you're required to take many because of the, the clinical symptoms aren't improving, that's a red flag to me that perhaps something else is going on. Yeah, okay. Uh, there are maximum doses, doses for PERT, which are uh, based mostly on the cystic fibrosis population and some research looking at colonizing fibronopathy. I always say this wrong. Fibrosing colonopathy, which is some damage to the lining of the intestine that can happen with large doses of PERT, but it's only been reported in the CF community. Right. On really large doses. Large, large enough doses that you go, oh, something else is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so when a patient, um, they first meal they have, and the first time they've used PERT, they will see that that there is no steatorrhea after that meal if you've got the dose right. Yeah. Very soon after, we, I generally say within two days you should notice some symptoms. If you don't, then we we want to come back and have a conversation around timing, dosage, anything else that might be happening. So there's a there's a few things to consider with PERT, particularly around. Um, things like acid suppression if there's significant amounts of um, or if there's insufficient amounts of gastric acid being released or too much gastric acid, it can change the way that the granules and the micros- right. the, the spheres are released. Mm. Um, likewise, if there's too much acid in the duodenum, then the granules aren't released in a timely way either and they can't do their job so and are there any sort of common challenges that your patients face when they start on PERT yeah look there's there's just a lot to wrap your head around and mm. certainly there are a few things that come up some more often than not and in the context of cancer in particular we, we often see pa- patients who are having difficulty swallowing and taking a capsule is quite a challenge and this is this becomes a problem with perch because the the coating on the spheres internally but also Mm. on the the capsule is important for when it's released and just for some background here that the outer coating on the creon as a whole um dissolves in the stomach and the spheres inside, they're also coated and they're designed to be released when the pH is greater than 5.5, so trending towards an alkaline environment, which happens in the duodenum when mm. bicarbonate, bicarbonate is released and brings up the pH. And so if someone's having trouble swelling a whole capsule and wants to break it open to release the granules, 
it's really important that those granules remain in an acidic environment until they hit the duodenum where they're intended to be released and neutralised with the bicarb. And so if someone needs to, um, if someone's struggling to swallow the capsules, it's important to provide the granules in an acidic vehicle. So often I recommend an apple puree to keep it, yeah. uh, keep it safe until it's released in yeah. the duodenum. Yeah, interesting. And I guess also meals have to be planned, don't they? You can't just go out and yeah. suddenly decide that you'll have something big and fatty to eat if you haven't got your... Well, you um, just need to make sure you take with you. <laughs> Yeah, and it's tricky because there's a fine line between giving enough information for that autonomy to empower somebody with mm. dose adjustments without them wanting to calculate grams of fat which yes. is just not a place we ever want patients to, mm. to have to be in. And so it's it's just giving general guidance. If you're having fish and chips, maybe it's four pert rather than the two that you would normally have. Yeah. Uh, it's also really important to ensure they're dosing pert to fluids and snacks because many, many patients will come to me and say, oh, I just had, you know, a few, few chucky biscuits after dinner and they didn't need a Yes. Well, actually, they did. And if you don't take the pert, not only will you not absorb any of the calories, nutrients from that um, that snack, but you get symptoms as well. And that can all they can all layer up mm. and cause some discomfort. I guess that does help with the the compliance or the motivation to keep it up, though. If you're symptomatic, yes, straight yeah. away. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. And <laughs> okay, all right. You told me to have it with my six almonds and I didn't yeah you're right I probably yeah. need to have it with yeah. my six I'm suffering <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so what are the what are the sort of other tips that dietitians should know about uh when they're working with a patient who's requiring PERT mm. one really important thing to be aware of is that many patients will come to you and will be restricting their fat intake or avoiding fat simply because they're in tune with their body and they've noticed mm. they don't get as many symptoms and they're more comfortable when they limit their fat intake. And this is a challenge. It's really important to provide um, education, but really nurturing advice and um, an understanding that you can certainly appreciate why that why that adjustment's been made, but empower them with the knowledge on how PERT works. Allow them to visualize that fat actually being broken down and absorbing to the body so that they can be more comfortable with gradually liberalizing their fat intake. Uh, it's certainly not recommended to limit fat when there's pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. Yeah, there must be fear associated so much, with that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so much fear. Even when PERT is working, it requires some counseling to, to liberalize the diet. Yeah, yeah, you can imagine that mm. long-term sort of negative reinforcement of fat equals symptoms and mm. feeling terrible takes a little bit to overcome even when you do have something there that's yeah, resolving sure. it. Um, it's still going to be your natural mm. reaction. Okay, so we need to watch fat intake. Watch for fat. One thing I do like to reinforce is that PEI can present many months, years down the line not just in the context of pancreatitis, but also in pancreatic surgery, there is residual pancreatic capacity if there's some remaining pancreas and that can still continue to support enzyme release and breakdown for many, many months. So just keep it in mind down the line as well. 
if you're seeing patients. Be aware of maximum doses. So I mentioned it vaguely before, but patients should, should not be taking more than 10,000 lipase units per kilogram, kilogram of body weight per day. So for context, a 60-kilo patient shouldn't be having more than 60, 10,000 international unit tablets a day or 24 of the larger tablets, which is a huge amount of tablets. Yes. And, and that's when those red flags should be going off saying, oh, if you're needing that much crayon, what else could be going on here? Mm. And as dietitians, we've got so much knowledge that can be used to explore alternative reasons why there might be ongoing GI symptoms. It might be that there's um, some IBS type stuff happening. There might be the importance for, um, for acid suppression in the context of if there's, if there's acid, too much acid that's preventing those enzymes from actually being released. Mm. You might need to consider fibre and FODMAPs. There might be some enteritis or irritation of the gut lining, brain-gut axes. There's so many other things to bear in mind. As with anything, PEI won't happen in isolation. There could be a whole host of other factors coming into play. It's important to look at the patient holistically. Yeah, yeah. So not just decide that that's the problem we've solved. Keep the dose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you also mentioned just before that um, PERT is pork derived. Mm. Um, is that an issue for people that don't consume pork? What does what can they do? Or yeah, can't they? absolutely. And it, certainly in the context of cultural or religious reasons, there, there does need to be some really respectful counselling into understanding the origins of PERT. And that unfortunately it's the only uh, well-established, you know, clinically proven mm. enzyme replacement therapy available in Australia um, or across, across the world. And so exploring the ability to, to liberalise some of those cultural restraints, generally it's really well understood and just does require some considerate counselling. In the context of allergies, it's a little bit of a different story. If there's a pork allergy, it's important that there's controlled trials of PERT in a really clinically safe environment. So often that would require admission or at least presentation to a gastro or specialist to ensure that they're well supported yeah. if there was any adverse reaction. I've had some patients with pork allergies who've been unable to tolerate PERT. And unfortunately, what we're limited to at the moment is use of an elemental formula. Yeah. Which is if anyone's got any other ideas, please <laughs> call me. It's really, really tough because yeah. as we know, they are unpalatable, expensive, the quality of life is rubbish when mm. you especially if you're drinking it. Mm. Um, I shouldn't say especially if you drink it, regardless. Mm. Um, but it's nutrition that can then be absorbed yeah. without those pancreatic enzymes. And also important to be aware that. There are many over-the-counter over products that, that, um, that are marketed as plant-based enzymes. Just be aware they're not well-researched and then certainly not necessarily regulated for their safety or their efficacy. So whether yeah. they work or not is certainly a big question. I imagine a Google search unearths all manner of um, quasi-management options. options. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. And I guess the other thing to consider is that we play, as dietitians, we play such a profound role, not just in the 
the assessment and, and potential diagnosis of PEI, but also their monitoring long-term. Mm. Often these patients have numerous specialists. They might see a, um, a gastro, a, a surgeon, a medical oncologist, a GP, and there's no sole clinician who's got ownership over the, the oversight of PEI. It doesn't yes. sit in anyone's lane. And what that often means is that monitoring of nutritional markers, which should happen yearly biochemically, um, DEXA scans, uh, reviewing their cardiovascular health, their diabetes risk, they're, they're often things that go uh, missed unless we're advocating for those to be monitored and reviewed regularly. So what are the sort of uh, recommendations that you make for your patients? A DEXA scan? A DEXA scan D, on diagnosis, yeah. So DEXA on diagnosis and then uh, two, two years later and ongoing as required, um, yearly biochemical review of nutritional markers, including those fat-soluble vitamins, minerals, iron studies, lipoproteins, but also... Um, diabetes markers because yep. of damage to the pancreas you want to be reviewing um, blood glucose levels hba1c insulin release those type of things um and monitoring nutritional status is really key too so looking not just at weight weight history but also uh, body composition markers so you yep. might consider doing a baseline mid upper arm circumference or if you've got access to any uh, body composition measures yep. certainly SGA, PGSGA are really valuable, and keep those as a as a way of actually monitoring the, the progress over time. And just one other question: Is this mm. a huge age range of patients you see with PEI? Mm. Like you're yeah. obviously getting young people who have some um, CF type certainly things, CF, or, but also yeah. the cancers and, and yeah, and and certainly. Um, yeah, middle age or a little bit younger, they start to present with um, PI for various reasons. But in the context of acute or chronic pancreatitis, soon as someone's you know, of age to drink alcohol, it can become yeah, uh, an, issue. an issue. Alcohol is another important factor con to consider um, an important part of your, your assessment as a, di as a dietitian. Um, alcohol can inhibit gastric lipase secretion so you can just further exacerbate the symptoms of PEI if there's ongoing alcohol intake and it's it's quite interesting actually many patients will disclose their alcohol intake to their dietitian before they do to their gastro yes. specialist so yeah. you've got a uh, you've got an important um important part of the team there with the good rapport building yeah so Lauren you've covered a lot of points and obviously there is so much to consider um, when you're assessing and managing patients mm. with PEI. Um, so for dietitians who might be sort of novice um, in this area, mm. have you got some suggestions of where they can sort of get some access some more information? Yeah, certainly. And look, there's a lot in here. There's a lot I've not covered. I'm certainly happy to answer any questions anyone has. Don't hesitate to sing out. Um, there are some really wonderful resources particularly more recently that have been developed that I'd highly encourage you to have a look at. Uh, there's a great guideline, an Australasian guideline for the management of pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, which is available online. Happy to, I'll send through the link, Jane. Mm -hmm. 
There's a webinar that's recently been released by uh, Pancare on pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, which has got heaps of information. There's also a very new, soon to be released, if it hasn't already, maybe this week, uh, pancreatic enzyme replacement clinician's guide. So um, I helped to support the development of that with Pancare because there's lots of information out there for patients and carers, but that high-level information and background understanding of how PERT works is really useful and there's a lot of valuable information in there. Um, heaps of other info. So I'll send it, send through some links so you can share it with the audience that, too, Jen. That's That's terrific. So, look, Lauren, thanks very much for all of those insights. It's a really interesting area and probably one that a lot of dietitians don't necessarily consider when they're seeing patients who aren't clearly marked as, mm. you know, a pancreatic insufficiency case, but mm. it's something definitely to be on the lookout for. So mm. we appreciate your insights. All those uh, resources that you just mentioned, we'll put links uh, into the show notes uh, for anyone that's listening and wants some more information. And so, Lauren, thanks very much. And we'd also like to thank Beatrice for supporting our podcast episode today. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.